the Academy of Consultation Liaison Psychiatry podcast series, where we discuss all things related to CL psychiatry, such as important clinical updates, interviews with leaders in the field, and new hot-off-the-press CL psychiatry research. I'm your host, Dustin DeMoss. I'm an associate professor with the University of North Texas Health Science Center in Fort Worth, a fellow of the Academy of Consultation Liaison Psychiatry, and representing the ACLP Online Education Subcommittee. In today's podcast, we invite Dr. Scott Simpson from Denver, Colorado, uh, from the Evidence-Based Guidelines Committee to talk about a very important topic on emergency psychiatry. Dr. Simpson, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself by way of introduction and um, what you're doing in Denver currently and why you uh, chose this very important article? Thanks, Dustin. Yeah, so I'm the medical director for psychiatric emergency services at Denver Health, which is our safety net health system in Denver, Colorado. I'm an associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. And through my work on the guidelines and evidence-based medicine subcommittee, I write the annotated um, and I write annotated abstracts on the latest articles in emergency psychiatry for the Academy website. Fantastic. Thank you. And Scott, what prompted you to choose this uh, specific article out of the journal of pharmacology in emergency medicine? What, what was going around and uh, going on in Denver and um, why do you think this is, has such a big impact for, for you and our audience? Sure, Dustin. So the article that we're going to talk about is called Efficacy of Combination Haloperidol, Lorazepam, and Diphenhydramine versus Combination Haloperidol and Lorazepam in the Treatment of Acute Agitation, a Multicenter Retrospective Cohort Study by Jeffress et al. Um, and this was an article published in the Pharmacology and EM series in the Journal of Emergency Medicine. And this struck me for a few reasons. I think this is treating agitation as a common challenge for emergency and consultation psychiatrists, especially in emergency and crisis settings, but really wherever you're practicing. And um, especially with recent recent shortages in use of lorazepam and use, recent controversy over the use of ketamine, I think this article really struck me uh, as in, informing my daily practice in a practical way. Um, and thinking about how I approach undifferentiated agitation. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that. And I know, Scott, we had spoken previously about some of the, you know, I guess, regional changes that you guys have experienced um, related to acute agitation Mm -hmm. management. Um, Can you briefly tell our audience a little bit about that and um, why this this particular article can help, uh, help guide you to make different decisions? Sure, Dustin. I think... So in Colorado, we are paramedics. Um, We're accustomed to using ketamine for the treatment of pre-hospital agitation or, quote, excited delirium, unquote. And we, a few years ago, um, had the unfortunate death of a young man named Elijah McLean, who was from a minority underserved community, and he died because of the use of ketamine after an encounter with law enforcement and what was most likely poor monitoring by EMS on site. So that led the state to prohibit the use of ketamine um, by paramedic services. And we've 
Um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of mixed feelings about that, especially on the emergency medicine side. And I think that this is a conversation that it behooves us in consultation psychiatry to be a part of how are we treating agitation and severe psychiatric symptoms among our patients? I, I think you're absolutely right, Scott. And um, this gets to the more the liaison piece um, mm-hmm. as it uh, pertains to uh, uh, helping our pre-hospital colleagues and even our colleagues in emergency medicine, because I know here locally and probably regionally, um, a lot of those individuals do use uh, ketamine for acute agitation, uh, both in the pre-hospital setting and in, in the emergency setting. So I think, you know, I think this is a, a very timely article um, to, to discuss perhaps alternatives, given some of the experience that you guys have had up in Denver to help shape um, some of our potential decisions and our liaison uh, recommendations for, for these uh, specific colleagues. Yeah. Um, well, getting to the article, Scott, can you um, just briefly uh, uh, summarize, um, you know, some of the, some of the high points in this article, and then later on, we'll talk about what, the, what, what this has done to your practice. Sure, Dustin. So this article was a retrospective chart review by a group in Arizona. They looked at the use of different combination medications for agitation in their health system that covered 21 emergency departments over a multi-state region. The authors systematically identified patients who had received these medication combinations and then conducted a retrospective chart review. And the groups they compared were patients emergency department patients who received diphenhydramine, haloperidol, and lorazepine, or a B52 for Benadryl, Haldol-5, Ativan-2, versus those who received haloperidol-5 and lorazepam-2 without without the diphenhydramine. So that's the 52 group. So looking at these B52 versus 52 groups, they were, the investigators were interested to see whether these patients required additional medications for agitation within two hours what side of, and what side effects these two cohorts experienced during the emergency department stay. What they found was that the two medication combinations were similar in terms of efficacy. So about one in five patients in both cohorts required repeated administrations of medication for controlling agitation in the next two hours. However, there were more frequently seen side effects among the group receiving uh, Benadryl or the B52 group. Um, Notably, they saw higher rates of hypotension, about 16% of patients in that cohort. Um, um, And then they, um, so that that was the most significant side effect. And then there was also, um, it also appeared that there was a higher rate of patients in the 52 group receiving anticholinergic medications within two days. Um, so almost 10% or 7.5% of patients in that cohort required anticholinergic meds afterwards. All right. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, one of the things that I noticed was um, you mentioned one of the primary endpoints was did they really need additional medicine um, or agitation within two hours? I think that's a very important um, you know, endpoint to to monitor because if you're if you're treating somebody for acute agitation, you want to make sure that yeah. you treat it the first time, right? Yeah, uh, treat it adequately. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things I liked about the study is 
it feels real world and really practical, right? Like I, I don't want patients exposed to additional medication if I can help it. I don't want my staff going into a room with a needle. I don't want anyone receiving course of interventions if I can prevent it. Um, you know, they didn't do, the authors really didn't describe what those additional medications were. Were they lower subsequent doses, for example? Um, but in general, I thought it was a really nice concrete outcome. And the methodology of the paper was just was a retrospective chart review. So that's also a really nice um, concrete outcome that's easy for a chart abstractor to dichotomize as a received or didn't received. And so as a reader, I could feel pretty confident that I think that that's probably a pretty validly ascertained outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. And before we get into how this has changed your practice, um, I just wanted to make notes. Um, you know, you mentioned you don't want your staff going into uh, into another kind of confrontational situation where they're having to give additional medicine. And one thing I'd like to point out is um, even though, you know, and this is kind of gets to the difference between statistical significance and clinical significance. Yeah. And um, if you look at the two cohorts, the um, 52 group, um, 40 patients had to be given um, additional medicine compared to 28 uh, in the B52. Now, it's not statistically significant, but that's 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 a difference of 12. That's 12 additional times where you're having to, you know, um, approach this agitated patient, give the patient additional medicine. And I just I just want our audience to make note of that. Um, but you know, that being said, you mentioned some potential adverse effects from from folks getting the B52. Uh, I think you mentioned hypotension. Is is there any other potential adverse effects uh, that the B52 group experienced compared to just the 52 group? Well, the, the, well, so the, the hypotension was one difference. The other kind of big difference in the category or the big difference in these two cohorts was the prescription of anticholinergic use within two days. And so the, the investigators were really trying to assess whether there were higher rates of extrapyramidal symptoms among that cohort of patients who were not receiving Benadryl with their Haldol and lorazepam combination. And so they found about a, a more than twice as many patients in that 52 group required an anticholinergic medication prescription within two days than patients in that B52 group. And the, those differences was about, were about seven and a half versus 3%. So again, not huge numbers, um, there are a few interesting things about that, though. I mean, the investigators did not have information on why these medications were prescribed for a lot of patients. They didn't see any chart examples of EPS. Um, however, they were lacking some information. Uh, so clearly something was going on that additional medications were being prescribed. The generally, you know, I think our, our rule of thumb in, is where I think of somewhere is up to 5% of patients receiving um, unopposed high potency, a typical, sorry, high potency, typical antipsychotics as having some degree of extrapyramidal symptoms. And, you know, in this study, you know, even with co-administered lorazepam, there's a fairly high rate of subsequent side effects and require requirement for anticholinergic medication use. So again, they 
couldn't drill down enough to say definitively that this is EPS, but clearly something is going on that requires treatment among this cohort. And so I probably, you know, speaking to how this changes practice, I'm probably a little bit more sensitive about the risk of EPS uh, for giving even Haldol with Ativan um, for patients in the emergency department. Adding Benadryl probably confers some degree of protective risk and similar efficacy. Um, but you know, I, I, in practice, I would probably err on reserving that for patients who I think might be at very high risk of EPS, perhaps because of their physiology, their prior history, or maybe they have a condition that predisposes them to EPS, such as HIV. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up that practical piece because in the, you know, in the psychiatric emergency setting, a lot of times we don't have access to you know, some of the supportive measures our medical emergency department's colleagues have, uh, such as uh, the ability to, to strap on some, you know, supplemental oxygen if need be. And I, I think I saw that one of the, uh, another big adverse outcome uh, was a significant difference in, in hypoxia, um, where the, the, the B52 group had to be given some, some additional oxygen compared to the, to the 52 group. Um, which, you know, can only, I can imagine only extend the, the, um, the length of stay within the uh, psychiatric emergency setting as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so to your point about the statistical versus practical differences, there's another difference in the paper where it really doesn't differentiate statistically um, with these cohorts. They had 200 patients in each cohort. Um, but you do wonder, like, if there's some signal there that a larger study, perhaps entirely achieved entirely through electronic data extraction could achieve. So, you know, in the B52 group, that is patients receiving Benadryl as well. You know, they had six patients who received O2 by nasal cannula. They had three patients who were intubated and none in the Haldol and lorazepam group. So again, not statistically significant, but, you know, sometimes where there's smoke, there's fire. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And I can't imagine, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the intubation group those you want to talk about clinical significance uh, that's uh, that's pretty clinically significant. Yeah, no, I mean clearly it's a big problem. You, you know, I, you know we're reading a lot into you know a table in the article. I, you know, one of the challenges of reading a retrospective review of this right is there's always a lot of confounding um, that you can't control for. And so another important part about the study that's I think worth talking about is. You know, the, the methodology here is a re- retrospective chart review um, using data that are re- readily available to the investigators. And, you know, this is a really common study type in all settings, especially in psychiatric, in emergency psychiatry, you know, where randomized control trials are difficult. Um, there may be limitations of resources. So this is an easily doable study. We just have, and I think it's very practical and helpful. We also have to recognize there's some limitations. So um, for example, why would a patient in practice have received a B52 versus a 52? The authors allude to the fact that psychiatrists or maybe psychiatric EDs may be more likely to use additional Benadryl. Those patients are different. Um, those practice settings are different. They may be seeing patients at a different course in illness. Um, perhaps those patients had received medications before um, or certain interventions before these IM. Medications. So there are just some unknowns um, that we're unaware of um, in the article. I, you know, would have been a stronger manuscript. I, you know, I suppose so. But nevertheless, I still think it has some important things to teach us about treating these patients. Absolutely, absolutely. 
Um, well, Scott, we're, we're running out of time. I wonder if you would be so kind as to just uh, give us the brief summary and, and uh, take us home with your uh, you know, final thoughts and changes in practice uh, from this article. Sure, Dustin. My take home for this is Haldol 5 and lorazepam 2 is just as good for treating agitation as Haldol 5, Ativan 2, Benadryl 50. Your patients are just as likely to have good control of their agitation. Moreover, you know, I, it's an, just a nice reminder for the physicians in this audience that, you know, Haldol and lorazepam can be mixed in a syringe, but once you add Benadryl, that's a second needle that's in the room for nurses to administer. So again, it's a safety issue for your staff. It's a comfort issue for the patients. So in general, 52, it seems preferable to be 52, especially when you consider the risk of side effects such as hypotension, respiratory complications. Um, the one exception might be, I might be a little bit more likely to order that B52 for patients who I know have some predisposed risk to extrapyramidal symptoms from a high potency typical. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Scott Simpson, thank you so much. Um, and uh, to our audience, thank you for tuning in to the ACLP co- uh, podcast. And uh, please stay tuned for future episodes. Scott, thanks again. Thank you, Dustin. Thank you, Dustin.